morning, Grace Church. How y'all doing? Amen. Y'all have a beautiful place here. Just want to say that. First time here, this place is amazing. As was said, my name is Kanan Parker. I'm one of the pastors over at Pillar Church in East Fort Worth. And Pillar Church sends you greetings from Stop 6. Um, we're grateful for you. Uh, we are your sister church. Uh, we also uh, come from the paradox line of, of, of churches. And we praise God for all that God is doing. Please go ahead and open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, as we're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. And usually when we come to this passage or we hear this passage preached, we're oftentimes uh, brought to our attention how Jesus engages with Satan, right? What he says and, and the big highlight and the big takeaway is Jesus uses scripture in order to combat Satan. Right? That's usually what we hear when we read this passage. And that's not, not true. That's very true. When Jesus engages with Satan in this passage, he most certainly does use scripture, but that is a secondary thing that what, that is a secondary or tertiary application from this passage. If you are engaged in spiritual warfare, you ought to employ scripture as a means to defend yourself and to stand firm in resisting the attacks of Satan, the lies of Satan, the way in which he sways our mood. Have you ever thought about why you wake up in the morning the way you do? Nothing seemed to have influenced you, but for some reason you're away that morning. I think there are ways in which and there are uh, uh, spiritual stratagem that we aren't aware of that impact us and influence us and it's the words of scripture that if we choose to believe these words that will do us right help us stand firm redirect our hearts and our and our affections so yes we should see that from the text but i want to see more from the text this morning this morning the the overarching thing we need to be seeing is how jesus displayed unwavering faithfulness to God. That's the big thing. Jesus displays unwavering faithfulness to God. And through that unwavering faithfulness, Christ is able to save all who are found in him. In Matthew chapter 4, we're coming off of a big event in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. It's his baptism. And for many of us, baptism is a big deal for us. Our family flies in or drives in. We make a profession of faith in front of the faithful, in front of the world to see. You all got a baptismal right there. And you do doom, doom, and you proclaim Christ, and it's Jesus all day, and everybody's clapping and celebrating. It's a big deal. And it's no different here. Jesus is baptized, and at his baptism, a big deal occurs. Not only is Jesus fulfilling all righteousness, but something happened at his baptism that we have to pay attention to in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Look there. It says, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Not only is Jesus making a statement in his baptism, but at his baptism, there was a statement from on high back down to all who were there to hear it. And it was the very voice of God speaking about his son. And he declared something about who Jesus was. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is a big deal. But here lies our first point of application. 
is that we must strive to faithfully surrender our will to Jesus after every major spiritual event. I don't know about you, but after, for many, after their baptism, they, we, have either a real spiritual high or a real spiritual low after any major spiritual event. Sometimes we have a, a big, happy spiritual event where you were baptized, we had a breakthrough, there was a salvation of a loved one, and we're on this spiritual high. Or we have a negative, a negative spiritual event. Maybe we fell into a, a sin that's besetting us. There was a death of a loved one. Maybe we got traumatic news from somewhere. But those moments, those minutes, those hours after any major spiritual event, we are prime for spiritual attack. Because we either have a false sense of security, we're so high that we think we're good. I know for many preachers, after they preach the word and they feel like they faithfully preach the word, that night they wrestle with sin. Sometimes we fall into a sin or a temptation of Satan or our flesh. And what do we tell ourselves? Well, might as well do it again. I'm already here. And we, and we have that spiral no matter if it was a high spiritual event or a low spiritual event, that is the prime time that Satan will come in and utilize lies and, and, and tactics and strategies to influence you. You should know that. You should be on guard about that. The moments and hours after any major spiritual event is the opportune time for Satan to attack our hearts and minds with lies, hopelessness, or a false sense of comfort and security. What he wants to do is lull us to sleep in one way or the other. And I want to commit to you this verse from 1 Peter 5, 8. It's a fitting verse to remember at all times. The verse says to be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. That anyone, insert your name. There is a reality that we in Western culture just refuse to accept, and that is that there are powers and principalities at work influencing us every moment of every day. We say we believe it, but we don't believe it here, and it hasn't come out of our fingers. That's how you know you've accepted theology. If you believe something academically, but it doesn't impact your affections in your hands, you haven't fully grasped that theological concept. It doesn't matter what you say. And so if you say that there are principalities, there are spiritual forces at work in the heavenlies against you, and it only here is as it's a volitional belief, but it doesn't impact your affections in the way in which you live out life, that theology stopped right there, and you are prime suspect. You are, you are prime to be attacked by Satan, and you will fall frequently. So I said, he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone who he can devour. That should change the way we worship, change the way we pray, change the way we act. It should change everything if we believe that because he's after you. But in this text, right after this major event in Jesus' life, who do we find prowling around like a lion but Satan himself looking to devour our Lord? Let's look at what happens in Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 1 through 2. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and your boy was hungry. I feel that. Now, before we read too much into this text, I want us to first observe 
some things in it. Firstly, this, after Jesus' baptism, it says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. You see, this wasn't happenstance. This wasn't like a mistake that happened. Jesus said, let me go to the wilderness, and the Satan said, let me go ahead and follow him. It says that the Holy Spirit led him to the wilderness. There is a sense in which God intentionally led Jesus into this battle with Satan. There's a reason why God led him here. Now, before we start ascribing ill will to God, we need to remember some biblical truths. One, from, from James chapter 1, verse 13, God doesn't tempt anyone to sin, including his son. We need to remember another truth. God will not allow any of us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We need to remember a third principle. Satan is not an innocent party here. His whole aim is to devour. Right? That's his goal. That's all he's after. But that doesn't change the fact that God allowed us to witness this cosmic battle in the pages of Matthew chapter 4. You have to realize what we're seeing. The Lord of heaven and earth versus his greatest ad- the greatest adversary, some- someone that we all fear to some degree or another. This is a battle for the ages. I don't, Tyson and Holyfield, nah. This is a big deal. God wanted this full-blown battle to, to go down for his glory and for our good. That's why it's recorded. Notice this. No one else is there during his temptation but himself and, the, and, and, and Lucifer. How was this being recorded if God didn't want us to read and see and hear this? How many times did Jesus go off to pray alone someplace? We don't know what took place in those prayer times, but we know what took place here. And we're to glean from that for our good and for God's glory. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly why God wanted this battle to go down. It doesn't tell us why we're supposed to see it and, and glean from it. But there are certain things in the scriptures that I want us to, uh, that I think that God would have us to understand from this passage, to pull from this, this, this pericope, this section. And it's firstly this, before we even get into the text, I think this is why we're seeing this. Firstly this, God wants Jesus to be able to sympathize with our weakness and to help us when we are tempted. I didn't make that up. That's from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, who? The son of God, right? Who he's de- That's going to come up again later. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16 of that verse. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. It's a beautiful passage. Jesus understands our struggle. In fact, no one understands temptation better than Jesus understands temptation because we cave to it and the temptation ceases. Jesus never caves. The temptation never ceases. He eternally endures, never caving to temptation. He knows it better than we know it, but we're crying to him like, oh, and he's like, baby, I know. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 says, therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. So that he could become a merciful 
and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for, he, um, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. We are seeing this cosmic battle so that we know who to go to when spiritual warfare, attack, temptation comes our way. We know who to go to, our great faithful high priest, the son of God, Jesus. That's the place you go. You don't go to Dr. Phil and Oprah. You don't go to your grandmama who's very wise. You don't call your friends first. First, you go to the son of God, the high priest who intercedes on your behalf, and you ask him to help you, and he understands and can help in your time of weakness. First place to go, beeline to Jesus during temptation, during struggle. Y'all know those sins that easily beset you. You know what it is, the thing that you tend to fall to when nobody's looking, but you fall constantly to that same sin pattern. Beeline to Christ. Beeline to Christ. And you can't get sick of doing that. You just got to keep doing that. Nothing else is going to help you. Nothing else is going to work. Nothing else is going to change the disposition of your heart but the Lord Jesus himself. Beeline to him. God wants Jesus to be able to sympathize with our weakness so he can help us when we are tempted. Why else would God want us to see this cosmic battle? Another reason. I think that God wants us to connect fasting with spiritual warfare. There's a reason why that's mentioned in the passages, in the parallel passages of this account, that he was fasting. There's a unique divine spiritual strength that seems to accompany those who fast. We tend to view fasting as a time of being weak and impressionable, but what do the scriptures say? Albeit uh, somewhat out of context, but applicable in many ways. First Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, it says that God's power is perfected in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the Apostle Paul talking about all the things that he has endured. And he says, yet God is strong and powerful in the midst of my weakness. And in a similar way, when we are weak because we have, we have not taken in nutrition into our body, we tend to think that's when we are at our weakest. But no, that's when God is at his strongest in us. There's a unique power and favor on those who fast for God's favor and power. We see this in the book of Esther in chapter 4 when Esther asked the whole community to pray and to fast because she's about to go before the king, Artaxerxes, and ask him to do something major. She needed divine help for this engagement with the king because the king will lop your head off if you come with no favor on you. You feel me? If you just show up to the king and he doesn't want you there, the king isn't a president. Y'all understand this? He ain't got no cabinet telling him what to do. He does what he wants. So she asked for divine favor and she fasted and she prayed and God delivered divine favor upon her and she was strengthened in her inner man and she was able to engage the king. And what happened? God had favor on her and the king had favor on her. And there was a reason why God highlighted the fact that the whole community fasted before she went in there and then favor came. Fasting is a part of spiritual warfare. It is to be employed and used. And no, it is not a time when you are weak. That is actually a time when you are stronger than you think. You see a similar reality here where Jesus is about to engage in some intense spiritual warfare, right? There's an intense battle for the faithfulness and allegiance of Jesus in this passage. Yet he does so. He engages in this battle in a fasted state. 
let's not pretend that Jesus didn't know this is about to go down. I think, he, I think he had some clues what was happening. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think God wants us to understand the reality of fasting and spiritual warfare. And again, he doesn't give us a whole expose on it. He just alludes to it. There's a reason. And here's a third reason as to why God wanted this battle to go down for our eyes to see. God wanted us to see with our own eyes what faithful dependence on him looked like. That's what God wants us to see, what faithful dependence on him looked like. I want you to notice this. In each of the three temptations, we'll read in just a moment, I want you to notice how faithfully theocentric Jesus' answers are. Not just that he used scripture. That's cool. Using scripture is great. But look look what he says. He's very theocentric. He says man lives off God's word alone. We're going to see that. That's what he says. And then he says, don't put God to the test. That's what he says. And then the thing he says, worship God alone. In all of his answers, he's overly theocentric to be faithful to who God is. That's his backbone. The person, character, and nature of his father is all he's leaning on. He's not saying that I got this, or I can do this, or I've conquered this before. He has none of that in his mind. He says, no, God's word, faithful to him. I need him. Lean on him. Don't test him. He's theocentric in his his warfare. We're very anthropomorphic in our warfare. We're very man-centered in our warfare. We think we have strength and we have some inherent ability to engage in this battle. No, get theocentric with it. What did God say about himself that's given you the strength to endure the temptation? That's what you got to see from the text. It's not just using scripture. It's scripture that points to the nature and power and character of who God is. Any old scripture just won't do sometimes. Sometimes you need to be reminded who God is. What the scriptures say about him. And then you got a fighting chance. Jesus intentionally highlights his faithful dependence on God in this harsh environment as a reality that we need to adopt. And that needs to be looked at in contrast to how we can respond to similarly harsh environments. We tend to get humanistic and fickle rather than faithfully theocentric when we engage in attack or warfare or hardship, right? When you guys go through hard times, you turn inward. We turn inward. We, start, we do what you know what we do. We mimic the people of Israel very well. We turn inward. Uh, when we read through the events of the Exodus, what do we find? That when they went through trial and spiritual warfare and hardship, what did they do? They questioned God's care for them on their journey. I don't know about you. I'm not going to say raise hands, but all of you, most of you have questioned God's care for you in the midst of your journey. That's what you've done. I've done it. I know some of y'all have done that, right? What else did they do? They tried to manipulate God's hand to act. Oh, you don't remember when you did that? When you said, God, if you get me out of this, then I'll. You don't remember trying to manipulate God to do something? Off of some bogus promise that you ain't going to keep? We did it. Come on now. Y'all, we're, we're sinners and sufferers and strugglers up in here, right? Can we admit the real? We're always trying to provoke God to do something we want him to do for our benefit, not his glory. I want to be faithful, faithful, faithful. Why are you going to be faithful? Because you want something from him. Manipulation, right? What else did they do? They ended up worshiping false gods in order to appease their situation. And we do the very same thing. We stop trusting in the God of the scriptures in order to get or do whatever it is we're trying to get or do. You see, instead of 
waving. At, oh, this. Oh, ooh, ooh. Y'all, okay. I collect myself. I be getting excited about the scripture, man. Y'all, how do you not get in? I don't understand this. This is it's just scriptures. Notice that Jesus didn't wave Satan off after the first temptation. He never thought about that. Jesus could have just, Satan could have showed up. He could have said, ah, da, 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 get out of here. And what would Satan have to do? Oh, man, okay. He'd have to leave, but he didn't. Jesus allowed Lucifer to tempt him three times. Three times for us to see. And in each of his responses, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 8 to make a connection to the people of Israel that he is the faithful Israelite, just as he is the faithful Christian. And all who find right standing with God has to be found in the person of Christ as the faithful Israelite for God's, uh, for God's chosen people of the Old Testament and faithful Christian for God's chosen people for all who have faith in Christ now. Everybody has to find their equal footing with God at the person of Jesus. And so he quotes that Old Testament from, from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. And these realities are more than applicable to us today and now. So let's, take, let's, let's now take a look at the event. And let's try to glean from it, firstly, Jesus' faithfulness, and then our potential shortcomings, and then our shortcomings and our need to repent. And hopefully we'll learn to follow Jesus and trusting in God in every facet and area of our lives. We, y'all still with me? Y'all notice I can give you no illustrations or nothing? I'm trying to get up in this world with y'all. Can y'all get in the world with me? I ain't give you the long stories of the thing that happened. I don't care about that right now. Y'all with me in the text? This isn't a great text. It's a good text for you. Okay, look at it. Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 3. It says, Then the tempter... Whew, you see how he calls him? This so much. Oh, Lord Jesus, I need your help, Lord. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, stop there. What was God's declaration in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17? This is my son. Y'all remember that? What was the, the, the reality that the author of Hebrews said that this high priest was? Who was he? He's the faithful son of God. He is the son of God. No one's disputing that, even those Lucifer's uh, alluding to this. But look what he says. He has a Genesis 3 quality to his attack to, to Jesus. He says in 3, the tempter approached him and said, If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, this is Jesus' response, It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Stop there. Obviously, Jesus is hungry. 40 days, 40 nights, no food. He's hurting. Okay, I don't want you to picture a man sitting in the wilderness on a bench singing kumbaya. The man is frail right now. Okay, his stomach is probably in a little bit in pain from not eating. All of his glycogen stores are depleted. He has no more fat left on his body. After 40 days, his body's eaten, eaten itself up. He's thin. He's frail. He's hungry. Okay, picture this. He's looking weak. He's looking easily manipulated. He's looking like he's looking for an out, okay? He's, Jesus is 100% man, just as he's 100% God. But don't forget he's 100% man. He's curled up, okay? 
We always tend to think he's standing mighty and his biceps are bulging in his chest and his traps and he's roaring. Man, live a God, the word of God. No, he ain't that. He's like, oh, man said, not live off bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was hungry, but perhaps Jesus was fat. This fasting that Jesus was doing was giving him the the requisite strength to stand firm against the schemes of Satan. In this first temptation, Satan's strategy is to get Jesus, this is for you, his strategy is to get Jesus to bet on himself. That's what he's doing. Get Jesus to bet on himself rather than faithfully trusting God. In Satan's question, there are traces of truth that he subtly twists in hopes of leading Jesus astray. This is what Satan does. All false truth rides on the back of real truth. That's why it's hard to detect. And he wants Jesus to bet on himself. He says, if you are the son of God, there's not a question that he's the son of God, but he's leaning on something that is true in order to get Jesus to do something that his true self can do, but you shouldn't always do what you can do. I'm going to get there. Jesus is the son of God. His baptism proved it, it declared it, it proclaimed it. And by this very designation, we are kind of led to believe that Jesus actually does have the power to turn these stones to bread. Okay? I can't prove that because he didn't do that. But I bet you he could do that if he could multiply loaves, feed 5,000 dudes. Pretty sure he could turn some stones to bread. He's, he's the Lord after all, right? But to do so, would, 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 if, if he did that, he would undermine his whole ministry. Listen to this. I'm going to read this because I don't want to mess this up. I want you to hear these words. If Jesus turned the stones to bread, he would be effectively saying, trust God to care for all your needs until you feel like you need to trust yourself and then go and do that. That's what he'd be effectively saying. Trust God for all your needs until you feel like you need to trust yourself. And at that point, go ahead and just trust yourself on that one. Bet on yourself on that one. You see how subtle that is? Just because you have the power to do something does not mean that you should do it because it may undermine the very principles and values and mission in which God has sent you. That's why Jesus says, man will not live off bread alone, but off every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you want to live, you not only need to eat physical nourishment to be in, and trust that to build your body up, but you need to faithfully trust God's word and rely on that to build up your spiritual man. The word of God is just as substantive for the soul as a nutritious meal is for the body. And to miss either is to emaciate yourself. We are complete spiritual and physical beings but we care more for the physical some of us care more for the physical than the spiritual some of us care more for the spiritual than the physical but you are not healthy if you're not caring for both you're just not you're not in a good spot Jesus actively chooses to be to faithfully depend on God to care for all of his needs thus even without food Jesus has the strength to resist the devil Let me give you some clues to see if this is what you're doing. Ready? You know you're not trusting God if you have to lie and cheat to gain or maintain what you have. Tax season's coming. Don't lie. Okay? Don't lie on your taxes. Be truthful. And trust God to take care of you. Because you trust God, 
until you feel like you need to trust your own numbers on that sheet. It's crazy how we do the same thing. Satan tempts us and we just rolling in it. Why do I do that? Because it's not new. It's not com- We've all been tempted to lie on something, to cheat on something in order to bolster ourselves, put ourselves in a better position to come up. No. Jesus is showing us no matter how emaciated and hungry his belly is, he ain't cheating, stealing, and maintaining or keep nothing. He's trusting God's word. And we need to be trusting God. We can be honest individuals and trust God to care for us. You know you're not trusting God when the fear of the unknown is the only thing keeping you from from that next step in your life. Some of us have had confirmation over confirmation, hand over fist, to do a move or to do something, but you don't do it because of fear of the unknown. That's not trusting God. That's, I don't know what you're trusting at that point, your own intuition. You know you're not trusting God when you consult less the word of God and more the culture and our news proponents to tell you who and what you should be like and what you should vote for. I want to encourage you to care less about what Fox and MSNBC and CNN think and more so on what does God say about any given topic or any given theme in any given arena. And that is where we go. We go where the book leads. I don't care your political position. The church I pastor has staunch both sides. I don't care what the historical position, what did the scriptures say? That's where we go. And if it's no man's land, so be it, because we're not trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in God to faithfully care for all of our needs. That's where we go, not what Fox News tells us, not what MSNBC tells us, not what CNN tells us. Name another one, don't care. What did the scriptures say? That's where we go. We faithfully trust God to supply all our needs in every area. The second temptation that we see, we see Jesus faithfully trusting God, not just trusting his word, okay? There's there's a nuance. He's trusting God's word, but he's trusting him at his word. Okay, there's a difference. He's trusting him at his word. He's not looking for some hidden thing inside the text. He's going to trust him at what it said, but, but let's read it. Matthew 4, verse 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city. Many believe this is Jerusalem. Had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple or the corner of the temple, depending on how you interpret that word pinnacle. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, there he is again using truth to ride on the back of his temptation. Be careful. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Why? It is written. Satan learned from Jesus' defense. Are you you going to use scripture, huh? I I got you. It is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Quote scripture. Jesus told them, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. See, this is where it gets fuzzy because it's scripture versus scripture. Who's right? Is anybody wrong? This is, oh man, I want to talk about hermeneutics. It's important to understand what scriptures mean and what they're pointing to and how would it apply to certain scriptures to us and to ourselves. But I'm going to get there in a second. Ooh, Canaan, slow down. Now, firstly, it's unlikely that said the devil, the tempter, took Jesus out of the wilderness for this temptation. Okay, it's probably not that he physically transported Jesus somewhere. It's 
more likely that some kind of a supernatural vision taking place. Be that as it may, you can believe it was physical if you want. It doesn't matter. You're still orthodox. But his scheme is to get Jesus to test God. He wants Jesus to manipulate and orchestrate a situation where he would force the hand of God to act on his behalf. Now, if we think about this, what Jesus would be communicating by forcing God to act this way, what is he communicating? He's communicating a lack of trust. If he was to go on the pinnacle and jump off in accordance with the scripture that Satan commanded, it would actually be a lack of trust, not a, not a, not a confirmation of trust. Have you ever had someone say to you or perhaps you said to somebody else, why do I have to keep proving myself to you? You ever heard those words? You ever thought about what those words mean? Why do I have to keep proving myself to you? Because there's no trust here. You got to keep proving yourself because I don't trust you. Jesus responds with, don't test the Lord your God. Now, there's two dominant words for trust in Greek in, at this time. For, for test in this time. Dokimazo, which just means to test or to approve. So I'm testing you with, with the idea that you're going to faithfully come through. Right? That's the test. It's like when you fix your car and you take it for a test drive. Right? You're, you're testing your car, but you're like, this mug fitting to work this time. Right? You get in, you take that turn. Oh, it worked, it worked, it worked. The wheel didn't fall off. That's dokimazo. Okay, that's a good test. You want to, you want to succeed, but then there's periodzo. Periodzo is to test with the aim or point of making you fail. However, the word is used for both, depending on the context. But generally speaking, it's I'm testing you because I want you to fail and prove that you can't be trustworthy. And that's the means by which Lucifer is using this word test with Jesus now. He wants him to prove something. Satan wants Jesus to test God with a posture of manipulation and hoping of cracking Jesus' trust in his heavenly father. Guys, I'm going to tell you what, that, what that's talking about, that text in a minute, but I want, I want you to hear this. There's a fine line between faith and foolishness. It's very fine. Faith is finding yourself in a hard situation and trusting God to save you from it. That's faith. Finding yourself, key word, finding. Finding yourself in a tough, tough situation and then trusting God to rescue you. Foolishness is intentionally putting yourself in a foolish situation and then trusting God to save you. That's foolishness. Now, it do, it's not dependent on whether or not God saves as to whether or not it was faith or foolishness. But it's foolish to place yourself, actively place yourself in a place that is unwise to be and then say, okay, God, I need you to rescue me. <laughs> if there's crossfire going this way and God didn't say walk through it, you're going to say, well, psh, I'm a man of faith. I'm going to walk up in these bullets and they're not going to touch me. <laughs> That's foolish, bro. Wait till the fire stop. Go to one side or the other. Don't be walking up in that mug. Use wisdom. That's, it. That's not smart. But faith is God says, walk among the midst of that. If I ask you to, you will. And I got you. Trust me. Faith is what we see with Abraham and his son when he went up on the mountain. And he says, I need you to sacrifice your son on my behalf. There was a direct command for God, uh, from God to Abraham to sacrifice his son. And he was going through with the action. Not foolish. But if he went up there with no command of God and said, I'm going to sacrifice my son up here. It's going to be great. God's going to love it and accept it. No, that's foolishness. God didn't command such things. 
Sometimes Satan tempts us with foolishness and disguises it as faith. There's no thus saith the Lord. We just do it because we think we know. And he does that for this reason. When we do a foolish act in the name of faith and it doesn't work, it cracks our armor in the place where we trust God. See, God, I knew you weren't going to come through. God never told you to do that. You didn't fast nor pray. You just went ahead and did this thing. Scriptures didn't say, thus saith, go do. You just went and did, didn't work. Now you're saying it's my fault? No, (laughs) foolishness. When Satan, the text that Satan quoted wasn't meant to be read by Jesus as a means to compel him to jump off something tall. That's not what that text is there for. The text that Satan quoted was built to conquer fear and to give courage and motivation to travel the highest and hardest terrain full of confidence that God can and will provide all the care and protection he needs to finish the course that God has set before him. That's the reason for the passage. It says, yes, you jump off this thing, angels going to catch you, you good. Technically, would angels catch him? Probably. Doesn't mean that's what that text is there for. He's saying, no matter what I've called you to do, I got you. I called you to this life. I called you to die. I called you to give yourself as a ransom for many, but I got you. Everything you experience, know my hand is orchestrating these things for my good, your good, the people's good, and my glory. I'm here. I got this. If you fall off this building, angels scooping you. Be good. Ain't nothing going to happen to you that's not in my will. That text gives you fire and confidence and motivation to know that nothing happens to you outside the will of God. He got you. That's what that text is for. Not to jump off the top of grace and be like, well, he's like, you're going to catch. Let's see. Ha-ha. Don't do that. It's there to remind the person of Christ and us that we can run 100 miles per hour for his glory with the Father's plan, knowing that God got our backs. That's what the text is there for. So Satan takes the text. Now, let me ask you, is the text wrong? Nope, text is never wrong. Application of it could be wrong, though. Interpretation of it could be wrong, though. Jesus says, yeah. He says, yeah, you use scripture, but don't test God. Don't try to manipulate the hand of God. God says, don't test me. I got to finish up. Okay. Look at verse 8, Matthew 4, 8. We're going to read 8, 9, and 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. It seems like Lucifer loves high places. There's some irony in that. If y'all caught it, you caught it. You didn't catch it, sorry. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, look look what he said, this dude. He said, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. This temptation is a matter of faithfully trusting God's long game. Faithfully trusting God's long game. When we're in the midst of hard times, we can't see past our nose. I've been to... Uh, 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 certain places in, this, in the United States and outside the United States where you see the intelligence and the wisdom and the, 
the ingenuity of such people. You're like, these people are geniuses, but they're struggling. And because they're struggling, they can't see past here. But if they had the bandwidth to be comfortable, man, they could do something amazing, but they can't see past here because they're in the midst of trouble, trial, hardship. It keeps you with short sight. Jesus is hungry. He got this dude nagging him. Constantly now, oh, why don't you turn to Jesus? And he's like, oh, man, live. Right? He's in this situation. He, you would think that he's going to fall for the short-sightedness. Most people would. Most people would make a foolish decision that would benefit us now, but would ultimately hurt us in the future because he wouldn't be thinking about what God's end game is. Satan wants to take advantage of Jesus' weakened condition by juxtaposing his weak, lowly, incarnate condition with that of a king. You see that, right? Jesus is frail. That's why I highlighted that. He's frail. He's hurting. He's probably laying on the ground sideways, curled up in the fetal position. He ain't eat for 40 days, B. And he comes and he takes him to this high mountain. He says, you see all of this? Ha <laughs> ha. Yours. Bow and worship me. It's yours. He's juxtaposing his short-term condition, the pain and the agony that he's in, to being that of a ruler and a king. What does that imply? power, well-fed, never hurting, always comfortable, right? That's what's tempting in those times of hurt. Satan even talks up his power in a parallel account. In Luke chapter 4, we see a parallel account, and, and he, he, he just, there's just a little bit that Luke adds that's just like, I don't know, it did something to me, so I included it. So he took Jesus up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor. In all this authority, because it has been given to me, because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you will worship me, all will be yours. <sighs> he just talking himself up. All this power and authority has been given to me, and I can give it to whomever I want. Ooh, there's themes of other people saying these things. We're not going to go there, but Satan paints the picture that he himself is the king of kings. You see this. He's, he's bringing them up, all these kingdoms and rulers, and he's saying, what is he saying about himself? <laughs> this is mine. See, all these kings, they're vassals. I'm the king of kings, and I can give it to anybody I want because it's been given to me. Bow down and worship me. All this can be yours. He's painting himself as the undisputed ruler of this world, and that made the question pop up, is it true? You ever ask that question when you read this temptation, if you've read it before? Is, he, is what he's saying actually true? Remember, heresy rides on the back of truth. There may be something true about this. Is it true that Satan has major authority to be given to whomever he wants? Well, maybe. Jesus himself calls, calls Satan the ruler of this world in John 12, 31. I don't know the extent of that. I'm not going to pretend to. I can't parse it, can't figure it out. But I do, you do do this. If, if God is God, and God is the sovereign ruler of all things, what could Jesus mean by, G, by Satan being the ruler of this world? What on earth could that mean? There are passages that help us clarify these things to a degree. It means this. It means that Satan is the ruler of this world in the sense that he holds the dominant sway of the hearts and minds of people. I didn't make that up out of nowhere. It's actually 1 John 5, 19. It says that the, uh, John says that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So there is a sense in which he's running some things because they're under his sway. But what else do we know about Satan? 
we know that he's a liar. John 8, 44 says that he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. That hurts my feelings if he was talking about me. I'd be like, ooh, I'm the father of lies, B? That's harsh words. Jesus knows this about Satan. He's able to withstand this cheap, immediate gratification that Satan is trying to tempt him with in exchange for worship. I need you to get a hold of this. Satan is trying to dethrone God right here. If Jesus worships him, he now holds sway and authority over. Satan's goal is to get the creator to worship the creation. Y'all ain't seeing this in here. <laughs> He's trying to get the creator to worship the creation. Know what's ironic? That's what we do as people. We worship the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Sound familiar? Because that's what Paul told us. He wants Jesus to bow down to himself. Paul told us this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. I paraphrased it. It says that we suppress the truth with selfish unrighteousness, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie, that we seek to worship the creature rather than the creator, all because we followed ourselves, we allowed ourselves to be swayed by the lies of the temporal over against the truth of the eternal. You can glean all that from Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Now, if... I know I'm throwing a lot of scripture at y'all. Y'all good? All right, I'm going to keep slinging. If Isaiah 14, 14 is truly talking about Lucifer, then what do we know he wanted? Y'all remember Isaiah 14, 14? It says that he wanted to be like the Most High, worshipped and adored. That's what he wanted, to be like the Most High.